It was several years ago. Uh, I was still going to Detroit before I came here. I was still going to Detroit two days a week. I would leave Louisville Airport early in the morning, and uh, I had this kind of ritual that I would do every week. Part of that ritual is when I would land in the Detroit airport, I would stop at this Starbucks and get a cup of coffee on the way to the office in Farmington Hills. And I did that every week. And uh, one particular morning, I stopped at the same Starbucks I'd been stopping at for a long time. And I ordered the same coffee I'd been ordering for a long time. I ordered a Vente coffee. Now, that's when you know you're sophisticated is when it's not a large, it's a Vente. So I ordered a Vente coffee, and, um, and as soon as I said this, I, I want a Vente coffee with room for cream. As soon as those words came out of my mouth, the lady behind the counter erupted in joy and said, where are you from? <laughs> I'm in Detroit, Michigan, okay? And she says, where are you from? And I said, Kentucky. And she said, where in Kentucky? And I said, Lawrenceburg. And she said, I'm from Versailles. Well, I'm going to tell you, this lady, I had made her day. She was like me, a foreigner in a faraway land. And she was so excited that she had met someone who talks like she does. And I didn't say anything except... Uh, give me a vente coffee with room for cream. But here's the point. She recognized me as a fellow Kentuckian by my words. Just my words. I didn't come in there wearing something that had Kentucky on it. I surely didn't have anything that says I'm from Lawrenceburg. Or more than that, I'm from Birdie in Lawrenceburg. She recognized who I was by my words. The search for the why is the search for the who. It's the real story of Christmas. Do you think there's a possibility that we can recognize someone by the words that they speak? I want to do a review. This is uh, part three of our Christmas series. and may Maybe it would be good for us to do a real quick review of the first seven items of do you know why Christmas. So here we go, real quick. And they'll be on the screen. Why the prophecies? The Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the first coming of Christ. And by the way, the Bible is also filled with the prophecies of the second coming of Christ. If you think the first one was big, wait till the second one. So why the prophecies? So you and I could live in hope. We would, we would live with an expectancy. The people in the Old Testament lived with an expectancy, a hope. Something's coming. He's coming. The Messiah's coming. We have that same promise today. Number two, why did God become a man? Because God knew that from down here we'd never reach heaven. None of us were ever going to be able to reach heaven, so heaven came here. That's why God became a man. Number three, why Mary? Of all the women on the earth, why did he pick her? You see, God noticed 
her purity of heart, and he noticed her purity of body. And I'm going to tell you, church, God still notices such things. He does. And then why the song of Mary? That was the next one. Why did Mary sing a song? It's recorded in Scripture as when she found out this news, which could have been heavy, which could have been devastating. Who's going to believe that I'm pregnant and God did it? She sings a song. Why a song? I've come to this conclusion. You'll sing a song too when he comes inside of you. You'll sing a song too when he moves inside of you. That's what he did to Mary. Number five, why Joseph? The Bible says that he was a good man. If you read the text, you'll find out this about Joseph. He was a good man who listened, who believed, and obeyed. Three things. He listened, he believed, and he obeyed. God's still looking for those people. Number six, why Bethlehem? Bethlehem reveals God's predetermined and prophesied plan to save the world. It reveals it because it's announced so far in advance that God has this detailed plan that's unstoppable. And not only is it a detailed, unstoppable plan, he wrote it down so you and I would see in advance what he's going to do. We'd live in expectancy and we'd live in this hope. Finally, the last one we covered last week is why that day? Why did Jesus come on that particular day? I'm going to tell you, church, it was the perfect day. God had aligned everything. The stars in the sky, the condition of man on the earth, everything was perfect. And I'm going to tell you, listen, listen, there's another perfect day coming. There's another perfect day coming. It was a perfect day when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of a virgin. There is another perfect day on God's prophetic calendar. Today I want to give credit to Dr. David Jeremiah and his book, Why Nativity? It was that book that I read that really spawned this series of sermons, and I want to give him credit and thanks. I don't want you, the church, to know about Christmas. See, I think the world's filled with people who know about Christmas. I want you to know why Christmas. I want you to know why, and there's a reason why I want you to know why. Because I'm convinced that the search for the why is the search for the who, the person of Christmas. Not the event, the person of Christ. To know the why is to know the one. And to know the one, listen carefully, to know the why is to know the one. And to know the one is to know everlasting life. The search for the why is the search for the truth. The search for the why is the search for the truth. And you will never know the truth until you know the Word of God. The Word then reveals the Son, and the Son reveals the Father, and the Father reveals eternal life. Do you think I made that up because it makes a real clever flow? Listen, we've based all of these five parts will be based on a single Scripture found in the Gospel of John. John 17, 3. Jesus reveals something. Here's what He says. And this is the way to have eternal life. What's, what's the way? If I, if I polled you, if I polled unbelievers and said, would you like to have eternal life? Everyone would say yes. There, this is the way to have eternal life. Jesus is revealing the way to have eternal life. To know you. 
This is Jesus speaking. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the Son, whom you have sent to the earth. It doesn't say to know about him. You have to know him. How can we know God? Really, how can we know God? By knowing his son. Well, that brings up the next logical question. How can we, 2,000 years after he's gone to sit at the right hand of the Father, how can we know the Son? By knowing the Word. It reveals the Son. Well, that brings up a next question. How can we actually know the Word? The Holy Spirit reveals the Word. If when you know the Word revealed through the Holy Spirit, you have you don't, you don't know about Jesus. No, no, no. You've experienced Him. You experience Him through the Word. And when you've experienced the Holy Spirit's revelation of the Word, called truth, then you've experienced the person called truth. His name's Jesus. And when you've experienced the person of Jesus, you have experienced the Father. And when all of those come together, here's the promise of God. You know the way to eternal life. Today we begin the eighth of our 13 questions. Do you know why? Here we go. Do you know why there was no room in the inn? Do you know why? Bethlehem was a quiet and uneventful village. Little more than a suburb of the awesome city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and its original temple that was built by King Solomon had been destroyed some 500 years before the time of Christ. Destroyed by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. But now, Rome was in charge, and King Herod had rebuilt the Jewish temple, and how fabulous it must have been to have been in Jerusalem, if it were not for all those Romans. Bethlehem. Bethlehem was just five miles outside the city of Jerusalem. Five miles from the place of the Holy of Holies, the temple where the presence of God dwelt in that rebuilt temple. There was better lodging and better atmosphere in Jerusalem. So why would anybody go to Bethlehem? It's only about an hour's walk away. But now the empire, the Roman empire was taking names. When you come to the time of Christ, the Roman empire rules the world. And they're taking names, collecting taxes on all those Israelites who descended from King David. And they were all instructed to report to their hometown. Everybody in the Roman government was required to report to their hometown. There was going to be a census. They were taking names. Why? So they could collect taxes. They got to know who you are and where you're from to send you the IRS statement so that they can get money. David's time, the glory of Israel, were now 10 centuries in the past. And the late king's extended family constituted a small nation itself. Why would the Roman Empire bother with taking a roll call? Why would the Roman Empire bother with a census of a conquered people? Money. Money. That's what it's about. 
You might be amazed what some people will do for money. I'm constantly amazed at what some people will do for money. That's why there's a census. That's why there was a decree issued by Caesar Augustus that the entire Roman world would be what? Taxed. You might be surprised what people would do for money. True story I read from, a, from an article in San Francisco. A man wanting to rob a downtown Bank of America walked into the branch and he wrote, this is a stick-up, put all your money in the bag. Now, and I got to tell you, he misspelled almost every word in that sentence. But he wrote that note on the back of a Bank of America deposit slip while he was standing in line. He was waiting to give his note to the teller, and he began to worry that someone had seen him write the note might call the police before he actually got up to the teller window. So he, did, he got nervous and he left the Bank of America and crossed the street to Wells Fargo. True story, true story. Crossed the street to the Wells Fargo Bank. After waiting a few minutes in line, he handed his note to the Wells Fargo teller. She read it and she came to the conclusion based on his spe spelling errors that he wasn't the brightest light in the harbor. She told him that she could not accept his stick-up note because it was written on the back of a Bank of America deposit slip. <laughs> True story. You can't make this up. And that he would either have to fill out a Wells Fargo deposit slip or go back across the street to the Bank of America. Looking somewhat defeated, the man said, okay, and he left. The Wells Fargo teller then called the police who arrested the man, guess where? A few minutes later, standing in line at the Bank of America. You might be surprised what someone would do for money, but I want you to understand, God's got this plan. And it was necessary for Mary and Joseph to be in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. And just so happens, just so happens that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that everyone has to be taxed which means you've got to go to Bethlehem, Mary, Joseph. Therefore, on that wonderful day, if you were from the family of the former King David, your road would lead you to Bethlehem. This little town of Bethlehem would be filled with aunts and uncles and cousins, many times removed. It would have been a cross between a family reunion and a business convention. Even with the makeshift inns and beds and breakfast that have sprung up since the decree, there's no way there would be enough room in Bethlehem to handle all the incoming. Latecomers were surely going to be disappointed. So here's the question. Why was there no room in the inn? I want you to imagine the jammed streets of Bethlehem with food vendors and money makers taking advantage of this sudden influx, this sudden required influx from the family of David that's got to go home. they got to go to Bethlehem. What that, with that scene in your mind, imagine this. This was the scene. This was the setting. This was ground zero for the heavenly invasion. 
This was it. I want you to picture that a lot of people were in Bethlehem that weren't living at that time in Bethlehem, but they had to come back to Bethlehem because of the roots for the census. In the town of Bethlehem, on the world's first Christmas, the people had come to give, not to receive. They're going to give taxes to Caesar. It is in this scene the glory of God is about to be born in human flesh of a virgin woman that we find this next verse. Luke 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Do you know why? It's a good question. See, the search for the why is the search for the who. Do you know why? Can you imagine why? That first Christmas, the greatest gift ever given came wrapped in a mystery so that no one knew what was inside. The Son of God was born into this world. Eternity entered time and space. I want you to visualize what happened. Eternity has entered time and space. Why then was there no room in the inn? Why then was there no lodging available? Had God the Father forgotten to arrange this small but necessary detail called lodging? If God could mobilize a star, if God could set in the heavens a star to direct the path, so that men from the east would know how to follow to Bethlehem. Is it not possible he couldn't have reserved one room in Bethlehem? This event was not a sudden impulse or an afterthought, but the very plan of God formed before the foundation of earth itself. It was first announced in Genesis 3. Some of you are going to be surprised by what I'm going to connect here. This event is not an afterthought. This event's been planned before the foundations of the earth. It is announced for the first time in the Holy Scriptures in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, the birth of Christ, the seed of a woman, a child of a woman is announced in Genesis 3. I want to read it to you, verse 15. This is God announcing the curse. In this case, he's announcing it to Satan. He says these words, and I will cause hostility. Some translations are enmity. And I will cause hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Notice the hostility. What's the hostility announced in Genesis 3? Her offspring and your offspring, Eve's offspring, and Satan's offspring. There will be hostility. He, the offspring of the woman, will strike, some translations are crush, your head. The offspring of a woman. This is Genesis 3. The offspring of a woman's going to crush your head, serpent. But not until you, serpent, your offspring will strike his heel. Which would you rather have, your heel struck or your head? One will be fatal. 
There will be war. Genesis chapter 3, the story of man. There will be war. There will be hostility. There will be enmity. There will be hatred between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. The woman. Let's start there. The offspring of the woman was arriving in Bethlehem on that perfect day. Do you hear me? This event, that first Christmas, was the fulfillment of Genesis 3. The offspring of the woman was arriving in Bethlehem on that perfect day. The birth of Jesus on that perfect day would fulfill this 4,000-year-old prophetic announcement of Genesis 3. Jesus was the offspring of the woman, Mary. But His Father is God. Not man, not any man, but who is the offspring of the serpent? I wouldn't have to discuss very long with the church who's the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3. Well, that's obviously Jesus. He's going to crush the serpent's head. But who's the offspring of Satan that's going to bruise his heel? Who is he? And why are they at war? I'm going to tell you, the Bible says clearly there are only two spirits. There are only two spirits. And from God's perspective, there are only two fathers. Two spirits and two fathers. This is a war. This is a battle for the souls of man. A battle for the children of God. And who will the father be? The offspring of the woman represents the children of God redeemed through Jesus Christ. I hope and I pray when I look at this audience today that we could all say together, we are the offspring of the woman redeemed by the blood of Christ, brought back from the death by the blood of Christ. But who are the offspring of the serpent? Do you know? They represent the children of Satan. Would that be people? Or is that just demons? Is that just mystery, dark world stuff? Or is it people? Is everybody a child of God? Many people want to proclaim that notion, but the Bible says it's just not true. Everybody is God's creation, but not everyone is God's child. The offspring of the woman represent the true children of God. They've been born again, redeemed by the blood of Christ, but the offspring of the serpent represents the children of Satan. Who are they? They are those who are not redeemed. They are unforgiven. They are the lost. They are the unsaved. And yes, yes, they are the children of Satan. They belong to him. It's recorded in the Scripture. Jesus announces it Himself. God announced the war, the hostility, the enmity between four, some 4,000 years before Bethlehem's manger scene. With all this advanced planning, listen, the reason I do all of that, with all this advanced planning going all the way back to Genesis 3, couldn't God have made room in the end for the Savior of the world? The woman, the mother of Jesus, was from Nazareth. God had planned that the Christ would be a Nazarene. And God announced it through the prophets years before. I want to show, I want to lay the foundation of all the advanced planning that was taking place in Bethlehem that day. And yet there's no room in the end. God had announced in advance He would be a Nazarene. Matthew 2.23 
So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophet had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Everything announced from Genesis 3 all the way up to the birth was being fulfilled. With all that advanced planning, there's no room. There's not a single room for him in Bethlehem. Maybe there's something to be learned here. Do you know why there was no room in the inn? The search for the whys, the search for the who, to know him. Not to know about him. The church is filled with people who know about him. Do you know him? Maybe Jesus explains it best years later when he himself says this. Luke chapter 9. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Do you detect a bit of sadness in that sentence? Because I do. The animals in God's creation have places, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He has no home. Even the animals have a home. In Genesis 3, God announced hostility, enmity, war, hatred, unparalleled opposition. Jesus seemed to understand that even from the beginning of his life would be filled with sacrifice. Not glory. Moments of glory, yes, but mostly sacrifice. Humility and sacrifice. Jesus was born into the war. Some of you still don't recognize it. Jesus was born into the war, the war for the kingdoms of men. Who will be king? The Gospel of Luke makes it clear that it would be a manger, not an inn. A feed trough in Bethlehem that would receive this king. Luke 2, verse 6. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. On that day, our first Christmas, the plan of God for the Son of God. Listen, the plan of God. It's not an accident. It's not a whoops. Left, left that one out. The plan of God was for the Son of God to arrive in a feed trough. Why was there no room in the inn? Because this was God's plan all along. The I am. I get cold chills when I say the word. The I am. That's who Jesus is. The I am was going to leave his heavenly home and come to the fallen, war-torn world of man in order to make a way for us to have an eternal home with the Father. He was going to give up His home so that you and I would have access to His home. He was going to leave His home and, come to, and become homeless. Can't even get a room in Bethlehem to make a way for you and I to have a home with His Father. John 1.14 So the Word became human. That's what's happening in Bethlehem. The Word became human. Some translations are the Word became flesh and made His home. Don't just say He became flesh, but He made His home 
among us here on planet Earth. And it began where? In a feed trough. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This is the plan of God. To dispatch His only Son to the war-torn kingdom of men to begin a journey from the feed trough to the cross. None of those sound very attractive. The feed trough or the cross. 33 years after the feed trough, Jesus summed it all up in this prayer. So when you ask this question, do you know why Christmas? Do you know why there was no room in the end? When you ask that question, I want this to be what you hear. Jesus in John 17, 1, before he goes to the cross. After saying these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. How will God glorify his only son? For you have given him authority over everyone. And he gives eternal life to each, of, each one you have given him. He, Jesus, gives eternal life to each one the Father has given to him. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the one true God, the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to the earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory. Bring me home. That's what he's saying. Bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Bring me home. He was from Bethlehem. The Bible says he was born in Bethlehem. He was from Bethlehem. But that was not his home. He was from Egypt. He leaves Bethlehem, goes to Egypt. But Egypt is not his home. He was from Nazareth, right? But Nazareth was not his home. We have staked our eternity in this room today. We have staked our eternity on the life and the promises of a homeless man. He was from a feed trough. But I proclaim to you today, he is not in a feed trough today. He sits at the right hand of the Father. Look at verse 5 again. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world. Before the world even began. That's his home. Why was there no room in the inn? Because that is how much it costs to get you into his house. Did you hear me? Why was there no room in the end? Why did the Son of God have to be born in a manger, in a feed trough? No room, no hotel, no accommodations. Because that's how much it would cost to get you into His house. Into His home. Why was there no room in the end? Because that is what it would cost to win the war and break the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Sin and death had entered the world of men in Genesis chapter 3. Who would be able to defeat sin? Who's going to be able to defeat death? God has placed a curse upon Satan, upon Adam, upon Eve in Genesis 3. Who's going to undo it? Before Jesus departed this earth to sit at the right hand of the Father in the Father's house, His home, His real home, He said these words to all of us who will put our faith in a homeless man from heaven. John 14, 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. 
Trust also in me. There's more than enough room. Somebody say hallelujah. There's more. Jesus said there's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? He's gone to prepare a place for you. And then he says these words, when everything's ready, I'll come and get you. So that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way where I'm going. Do you know why there was no room in the end? You do now. That's what it would cost for you to find a place in the Father's home. Next one. Do you know why? Number nine. Why do we call him? Why do they call him? Why did God call him Jesus? Why? Does it really matter? It's just, a, it's just a name, right? It's just a collection of letters, right? Does it matter? Do you know why they call him Jesus? If I went around the room today and asked individually, do you know why they call him Jesus? How many answers would I get? It's just a collection of letters. Does this apply to Jesus? It's just a collection of letters. It's J-E-S-U-S. Does it matter? We used to sing an old hymn at my home church. There's something about that name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after the rain. Does it matter? Why? The search for the why is the search for the who. Not to know about him. Yeah, I know that name. But to know him. To be able to understand his word is like encountering him, experiencing him. Did Mary and Joseph sit down one night in Nazareth, look through a book like Janet and I did, and say, Ha! That's it! Jesus! I like the sound of that. Nope. Didn't work like that. They didn't get to choose. It was chosen. I typed in the name Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, into the NIV Bible search and found 1,196 different verses in the New Testament with this name. That's a lot. Luke first mentions the name in this announcement from the angel Gabriel. Let me read Luke 1.31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will, in other words, this is non-negotiable, you will name him Jesus. Matthew records a deeper meaning and purpose of the word and the name of Jesus as the angel Gabriel comes and says, no, you're not going to leave Mary. Matthew 1.21, and she will have a son. And you are, <laughs> and you are, you just don't know it yet, and you are going to name him Jesus. And what's connected to the name? The angel is connecting the name. And he will save his people from their sins. It's a boy's name. You will give birth to a son. 
You will give him the name Jesus because this name will become the name above every other name. No other name will have such power. No other name will have such purpose. No other name in all human history will have the power and the purpose of this single name. I was having lunch at Don Pedro's. I think it was about a year ago. Several of the staff were over there, and we were having lunch at Don Pedro's. And that particular day, I had that Nineveh shirt on that says Jesus real big on the front. And I noticed that our waiter came over and waited at our table, and he had this little badge on, and it said J-E-S-U-S. I think he would say Jesus. So I got ready to check out, and I kept noticing him, and he's a real friendly guy. I thought, well, I'll cut up with him a little bit. So I went over to got ready to pay the bill, and I, and I said, Jesus, and I pointed to his tag. I said, same name. Do you like having that name? He looked at me and said, no, too much pressure. <laughs> I thought, that is cool. It's too much pressure. Do you want to go around with that name? Too much pressure. The man with that name will save people from their sins. No other name can do it. That's too much pressure. The man with that name will be the Savior of the world. This name is not just a random assignment of letters, but the divine purpose of God. The name Jesus wasn't a unique name in that day. It wasn't. It was a fairly common name in that day. For boys, Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the word Joshua, which means, translated, God saves. Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the word Joshua, which translates God saves, which is appropriate. Do you know why they call him Jesus? Let's make it really simple. Let's make it fundamental. You know why they call him Jesus? Because God saves. That's his name. I proclaim to you today that this is the most powerful name on earth. I tell you today, this is the most powerful name on earth. Just speaking the name has power. In Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. At the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just saying this name. And some people say, well, I look around the earth and these, I don't see every knee bowed to him, but one day they will. One day everyone's going to bow. One day his name will be spoken and everyone will fall down. Right now you can do it by your free will. Right now you can do it because you believe and you know who he is. You have encountered him through the Holy Spirit by the word. The Son has revealed the Father and the grace of God. And you can bow to him. But you're going to bow to him. Everybody's going to bow to him one day. The demons bow. One day all the demons are going to bow because they know who he really is. In fact, it's interesting. So many times in the scripture, Jesus would come to a town and the demons, they would say, the son of God. They, would, they know who he is and they would be afraid of him. Lord, don't cast us into the abyss. 
They know who he is. But the people don't know. Many of the people don't know, but the demons know who he is. He is the one that will end the war. Everybody listen. He is the one that will end the war in Genesis 3. He will break the curse. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is God's only begotten. He is Emmanuel. He is God in human flesh. He is God among us, with us. Do you know why they call Him Jesus? Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other name. You can call upon anybody you want, but only one name can save you. The name Buddha won't do it. The name Muhammad won't do it. No other name under heaven. He is the, the name is the gateway of eternal life. His name has power to break the curse. His name has power to raise the dead. The Apostle Peter quotes an 800-year-old prophecy of Joel on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, beginning what we call the church age that we live in today. The time of the Gentiles. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he quotes Joel, the Old Testament prophet. Here's what he says. Acts 2.21, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What name? Jesus. Say it out loud. Jesus. Say it out loud. Jesus. That name. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? Death. Eternal separation from God. You might not think that's a big deal right now, but you will. It'll be the biggest of all big deals. That prophecy of Joel was given about 800 years before his name was announced to Mary and Joseph. I just think that's amazing. That prophecy was given to Joel 800 years before Mary and Joseph even heard what his name was going to be. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Now you and I know what his name is. Jesus. There was going to be a name, a single name, a name above every other name because this name was given to God's only begotten Son. Does that mean that everyone will love that name and receive salvation offered in that name? No, that's not what it means. Remember, there's a curse of Genesis 3. The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. There's a curse upon all creation. Two spirits, two fathers, hostility, enmity, war. The curse is from God. Who can undo the curse? When Jesus was eight days old, he's just a baby in obedience to the Jewish law. They take him to the temple. They take him to the temple in Jerusalem and they encountered a prophet named Simeon. Eight-day-old Jesus encounters Simeon the prophet. Simeon loved this child and the message of salvation that his name represented. But Simeon also had received the truth from God about this name. Simeon knew something that you need to understand today about this name. In Luke 2.25, at that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. 
the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and he had, re- and, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, how would you like to have that blessing? That the Holy Spirit had already told Simeon, just hang on. You will not breathe your last breath until the Messiah comes. You will see him. That day, Jesus is eight days old. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now your servant, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation. I've seen what? What did he see? Salvation. You know how big that word is? You were dead, but now you're alive. That word salvation. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about this baby. When Then Simeon blessed him, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child, this baby is destined to cause many in Israel to what? Fall. What? What? There's a curse. It's on all mankind, not just Israel. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. This name will divide both sides. You'll be on one side or the other, but he will be standing in the middle. He will cause many in Israel to fall, and he'll be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And Mary, a sword will pierce your very soul. Today, the very mention of this name will bring joy to some. Right? Look at, look at how things in the world, so much has changed, but so much is the same. Today, the very mention of his name makes some people clap their hands and cheer and say hallelujah. And the same name, the same name makes some people curse and hate and despise you for even mentioning that name. How could one person, one name, bring two opposite responses, love and hate? I think it's not an accident that this name Jesus is linked to the name Joshua in Hebrew. Joshua was the one of the Old Testament shadows of the coming Messiah. If you've been in our Hebrew study, we we talk so much about these shadows of the Old Testament that are the revelation of the coming Christ. Joshua was one of those shadows. Joshua was the one that replaced Moses and led the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Joshua was used of God to end the years of wandering in the wilderness and take them home to the Promised Land. Joshua was God's shadow of the coming Messiah. He was going to end the years of wandering and wandering and wandering, aimless with no purpose in your life. And he's going to take you home. Do you know why they call him Jesus? Can you see it? He came to end our years of wandering in the wilderness and take us home. He came to give you a purpose and meaning every day of your life. Because you can see the end of your life is connected to him.
Did every woman in the time of Joshua? Listen, you want a sobering thought? Did everyone in the time of Joshua make it to the promised land? No. No. Was the promised land offered to all of them? Yes. Why didn't they make it? They rejected God's word. They rejected God's word. Jesus is our Joshua. If you, if you go to a Hebrew, to an Israelite, a Jewish person today who believes in Jesus, they will call him Yahshua. They won't, call, they won't say Jesus, they'll say Yahshua. Jesus is our Yeshua, our Messiah. 700 years before our first Christmas, the prophet Isaiah, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, says this, verse, 20, verse 21, and his name will be the hope of all the world. The Apostle John closes out his writing in what we call the Gospel of John with statement that summarizes and answers our ninth question today. Do you know why they call him Jesus? John 20, verse 30. Listen carefully. This, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written. I want to hold it up. He did many things that aren't recorded in this book. But what is recorded in this book, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, by believing in Him, how did you know about Him? They're recorded in this book so that you will know who He is, not know about Him. You can experience Him through the Spirit's power in this book. So that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. The power of His name. There it is. You may have life by the power of His name, but you don't have to. But you can. If you believe there is life by the power of His name. So let me close with these thoughts. Do you know why they... Why there was no room in the inn? This isn't home. Don't get too attached to things down here. Do not love the world or anything of the world, for if you love the world, it is not from God the Father. It is from the other Father. His name is Satan. Question number nine, do you know why they call him Jesus? Because God saves. Why should we today call him Jesus? Because Jesus, like his shadow Joshua, is going to take a bunch of people to the promised land. Why Christmas? It's when the light and hope of God pierce the dark and hopeless kingdoms of men. And why me and why you and why now? Why are you in this room today? Why you, you, think, you think there's a purpose for you? You think God put you in that chair today? You think you live unto yourself that you are totally outside of the will of God? 
Why me? Why you? Why now? Peter announced the answer to this on the day of Pentecost as the church began. Acts 2.21 And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are at war. We are at war. There's a spiritual battle taking place for the souls of man. People are dying every day. People are entering eternity every single day. It is a war. You cannot deny it. God has placed a curse upon Adam, Eve, and the serpent in Genesis 3. And the war began. In this battle, there is opposition. In this battle, there is hostility. There is enmity. Do you know why? There are two spirits and there are two fathers. And there are two outcomes for the people of earth. For the souls of man. Life and death. Heaven and hell are at stake. And no one and no one and no one is going to be neutral. No one. We are all mortal. I've come to this simple philosophical conclusion. We are all mortal and death is the approaching enemy. We are all. No one in this room is going to deny the statement. We are all mortal. And death is the approaching enemy and you cannot deny this truth. I proclaim to you today that Jesus of Nazareth has broken the curse of Genesis 3. Somebody say hallelujah. He has broken the curse of Genesis 3. The offspring of the woman, as announced in Genesis 3, has crushed the serpent's head. He has defeated the curse of sin and death. And by this name, Jesus, we are set free. We have victory over the grave. And by this name, we are now the children of God. Do you know how big that is? It will be ultimately the prize of all prizes. Because we have put our faith in this name, Jesus. His Holy Spirit is living inside our bodies right now. Guaranteeing and empowering that which is to come. Our future. That's why we feel out of place. Some of you, I've talked to some people over the last several years, and increasingly, here's what I hear people say, believers, people who are serious about their faith. They say, I am increasingly homesick for heaven. We feel out of place on this present earth. Now that we've encountered the power of this name, do you know why? We're homesick for an eternal home. Like there's no real place on this earth that satisfies us. Do you know why? This name will cause the rise and fall of many. But after all is said and done, this is the why. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why. Do you see it? I close with the scripture I began with today. John 17, 3. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to the earth. I'll ask Chad to come out for the invitation. Do you know him? This is eternal life. You know what's at stake in this sentence? Do you know him? Not do you know about Him. Do you know Him? Have you encountered God? Have you experienced God? And don't tell me, yeah, I did that back in 1978. <laughs> Something's wrong. Something's wrong. 
This is eternal life. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There are more than likely some people in this room today that need to call upon the name of the Lord. There are more than likely some people in this room today that have sin in their life that needs to be brought before God and unloaded. There are more than likely people in this room today that have something that needs to be adjusted to the Word. Don't ask the Word to adjust to you. And finally, there are people in this room today that need to celebrate what He has given you. The curse has been lifted. Death has been defeated. Sin has been conquered. The curse of Genesis 3 does not belong to you or to me if you are in Christ. That's worth a song. We'll stand. The invitation's open.